Welcome, everyone, to the Max Schmarzo podcast. It is your host, the leader of this show, the commander of this ship, myself, Max. And today, we're going to talk about a couple of things. We're going to talk about the fundamental questions you need to ask yourself when it comes to training. There's two fundamental questions from which I would argue all of sports science, sport itself arguably, comes from. And those are two really important questions. And if we have time after that, we're going to dive into some fun stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about the process of building this podcast, because I know people who listen to this podcast like to hear some of the business side. I'm not sure what to call that, the social media side of things. So trying to keep a segment in there. Um, so we're trying to finish with talking about building the podcast, building a quote unquote, um, social network, not like the movie that you've seen about Facebook, but your own social profile. Maybe that's a better one. Internet profile. I don't know. I'm not cool. I don't know the cool words, the metaverse profile, maybe whatever, but first and foremost, let's talk about the training portion. Cause that's, what we're going to open up with here today. Now there are two I don't even want to call it training, by the way, because it's not just specific to training. It's basically all things physical. But I talk about things from a training standpoint because that's my background. But again, keep that in mind. So the two key questions are, not even questions, but we'll just, I'll, I'll just hop right in. We'll figure it as we go along. We'll paddle this boat forward. It is number one, if you want to improve your sport, you have to get better at the physiology, your physiological potential, the contractile structures, the muscles, those things that contribute to force production have to be improved. I say those things because you could argue, Max, it's not just the muscles that contribute, keyword contribute. Muscles are the only things that generate force, yes. Not the only things that contribute to force because your soft tissues, your tendons, your fascia, your ligaments, whatever it might be, contribute to force production. So improving your physiological potential. An easy way to think about that is to think about a car. The muscle might be the engine. It is the only thing that is producing force and the only thing that is producing thrust. You can do things to improve the contractile machinery of your engine in a car. And you can also do things that contribute to force production, specifically the efficiency, like having very good um, or minimal drag on the design of the car, having very good tires, um, having uh, make sure the adjustment's correct or the alignment, I should say, is correct. And all these things are not actually going to generate more force because they're not actually producing the combustion. They are not the muscles. They're not producing the contraction. But they contribute to force production because they're not reducing or they're not causing wasted energy. If you had a very inefficient machine, the efficiency of the match of that machine can vary based on its parts, but the total potential of output is only determined by that machine's ability to produce output in the same way your engine could produce lots of, well, thrust or 
torque or whatever the heck engines do and then combustion. But if you don't have the right tires or the right you have a huge amount of drag on the car, you're not going to go as fast. So that's question number one. How do we improve physiological potential? Including all those variables. We'll get to that in a second. Number two. Number two is how do we integrate those physiological abilities into skill? Like the car example, you have this great car and you have a really bad driver. They're not going to be able to use the car to its fullest potential. The driver is your skill in this case. So we need to find ways to integrate the physiological potential into skill. And this is where people get so confused. They watch, I don't know, LeBron James or Messi or great athletes. And they go, well, what did they do to get so great? First off, their skill is absolutely through the roof. They are ridiculously skilled. Let's not get that twisted. But number two is their physiological potential, their genetic endowment might be higher at baseline. If we just take 100 people and line them up, some people are going to be far right on that bell curve. In other words, there are a couple standard deviations naturally stronger than the normal person. LeBron James is probably naturally really, really strong. We'll talk about what strength means in a second, by the way. But he's naturally really gifted. And in such... If he has really great skill and already has a really high genetic endowment of physical abilities, and you compare him to me, if I had his skill, I still wouldn't be able to do what he does because I don't have even the baseline genetic abilities of him. His baseline might be higher than my physiological potential could be. If I were to train my whole life, I might not be able to get as strong as, say, someone like Bo Jackson was able to get, who apparently never lifted weights, yet was one of the most amazing physical freaks to exist because he's just so strong. Maybe I could study as much as I want, but I could never be as smart as Einstein. So we got to understand that not everyone is going to have the same starting point. And so when you assess their abilities and their natural ability or their abilities on the field, it comes down to two things. Again, their physical ability, their potential and their skill ability. So let's talk about the physical potential first and foremost. When people hear this, they think strength. And when they hear strength, they think how much weight you can lift, the heaviest thing you could possibly lift. Oh, strength means I'm really strong and can lift something one time really heavy. Well, then that's not the case. There are lots of different types of strength. Strength is merely force expressed over time. A tugboat expresses one type of strength and a speedboat expresses another type of strength. Think about that. They're both boats, but they do different things. Same thing kind of with the human body. We have different types of strength and those are dictated by the type of proteins and fibers we have in our muscles, the enzymes and the enzymatic pathways, the speed at which those enzymes work, catalyze certain things, the speed at which our neurons send impulses, the size of the impulse, as well as the rate. So there's lots of things 
that influence strength. And because strength is actually comprised of many different qualities, there are actually different types of strength. In the same way that you might be able to get the same ingredients and make one type of cake, but if you were to use that same ingredient list with different ratios, you get a different type of cake. They come from the same ingredients, the same physiology that we have, but they express themselves in different means. So we have different types of strengths. So let's like talk about a couple of those really quick. And again, this is like the old Soviets researched this, and this is what they came down to because they were like, look, from a principal standpoint, how can we understand performance? And so they started off two areas. We had the physical and the skill. And they're like, okay, let's understand the physical. What types of strength exist? If we know there are different types of strength, from there we can find what are the contributing factors to those types of strength. So they broke down lots of different types of strength. Their strength, like at the very in initial part, the starting strength, which is your ability to rapidly produce force. We call that early rate of force development. When I talk about this and think about it, I just keep it in terms of force development. The Soviets used the word strength and strength X and strength Y and strength speed and strength endurance. It basically just means force. We, in uh, how we're commonly uh, taught now, think of strength as just like big muscles and lifting things. They use the word strength as synonymous with force. So there's lots of different types of force you can produce. And they can look at, well, hmm, you can produce force. Let's just look at it in an isolated manner. So in an isolated setting, what types of force production exist? There are things like early rate of force development, late stage rate of force development, early stage being based on the neurological aspects. And they call that like speed strength, how fast you could produce force and the neurological impulses that are sent that way to um, the neuro, let's just say this way, the, the speed at which the nervous system activates the muscles, the speed at which the signal gets to the muscles, like a Tesla, the quick zoom is what dictates how fast you can get going initially. And then later on, maybe it's the size of the engine, the contractile machinery. When time isn't an issue, right? we're not trying to move it as fast as humanly possible, just lift something as heavy as possible. Those later stages of force production are based on the contractile machinery. So when we lift a really heavy, big weight, that's heavily dictated on our muscles ability, not as much as the neural impulses. Now that is, by the way, this is where things get confusing, not to be confused with the ability to your nervous system to coordinate your movement. That also is important, but that's a skill. Your nervous system we're talking about right now is in an isolated manner. And this is where things get a little funky because we start to blend the world a little bit because you could then say, well, what type of strength do I produce when I lift a heavy squat? There are lots of muscles at work, Max, not just one. Well, that's a great question because there is a coordination aspect there as much as there is a physiological aspect of certain muscles being primary movers. But we'll get to that later. So you have the ability to look at different types of strength. And they said, well, hmm, if I know motor potential and your physiological potential, it's going to dictate how you integrate that into sport. I should understand the types of physiological potential that exist. And they broke down many different types of strength and aspects of strength, reactive strength, and elastic strength, things that used... Uh, soft tissues like your tendons and so on and things that didn't maybe just more contractile dominant and they isolate all these aspects of strength and then Yuri Verkashansky made this thing called dynamic correspondence it was a way to assess whether or not a specific exercise 
was going to be close enough to your goals. And it looked at like range of motion that the exercise was being done through. It looked at um, the speed of the movement, the rate of the movement, the positions, the type of loading. There's a list of them. And you can look at these five things of dynamic correspondence. Different coaches might have different variations on this, but the point of it is it's a small, short list of a couple of variables that essentially acts as a checkbox to see how specific it is to the sporting movement and the physical qualities needed for that sporting movement. And so that's where you can see deviations in training that don't look like sport, but are helpful for sport. Because for example, I might use a machine that adds stability so I can do a single leg RDL. This is kind of like a deadlift, but with one leg. So you're picking the weight up, but it's with a machine. So there's lots of stability. And I'm using that because I'm working on the glute in a grounded position, my foot's on the ground. I'm working on that hinge pattern. So I'm working on my ability for my glute to drive into hip extension. And I'm using the machine because it adds stability because I'm focusing on sheerly the force producing ability of those glutes. I'm not working on whether or not I can synergistically stabilize against a really heavy load because in sport, we're never going to do that. That exercise is specifically done for a specific reason to load those muscles and tissues. Now you might say, Max, but that's not going to work on the balance and the stability and the skill. Of course it's not. We do other things for that. You want to do other things that work on the balance and the stability of skill. And you don't want to do that at the same time you're trying to have the highest amount of overload on the muscles to create physical change in those muscles with heavy weights. Because you combine both worlds, you get worst of both worlds. You don't get enough instability and you don't get enough mass and overload. You just kind of get this weird murky middle ground that it itself becomes its own goal and challenge. And it's not actually useful for developing a specific quality, right? It's not like you're taking in like, I'm going to find this ingredient and find the very best ingredient across the world, right? You're building a cake, you build a cake, you're making a cake and you want to find the best flower in the world. Well, you're not going to find the best flower in the world if you also then have to find the best flower in the world that also is at the same time grown with the best sugar. Just go find the best flower and then go find the best sugar and then put it all together with your skill. And so that kind of starts to answer this is, again, I'm going to get to the sport part here because now we're going to talk about skill how this all fits in with sport, because in sport, we see people make these amazing plays. And what we see is actually skill being expressed in sport. But skill cannot be pulled away from physiological abilities. Someone's skill is always using their physiological abilities. And based on what I just talked about, people might have different physiological abilities, either innately, anthropometrically, so their limbs are different sizes, they growing up might have developed certain pathways more than others because they had a propensity to train those pathways or express those pathways. I'm sure you've met the kid grew up who sprinted all the time and the kid who jogged all the time. Well, they're training their muscles differently. And you do that for 12, 15 years, they're going to have different development. And when they go play a sport, they have different physiological potential and ability. And then when they go play the sport, they're going to have to have a skill that reflects their physiological potential and ability. So they're going to have different skills. The fast and explosive guy might be trying to run down the court and shoot a layup, blow by people and explode to the hoop. While the slower athlete maybe will find other means to bump and fade. So their skill 
starts to manifest around their physiology. And that's so important because in sport, we see the skill, but the skill only occurs because of their physiology. A great example, I believe his name is Kyle Anderson for the Memphis Grizzlies. He's like a 6'11", 6'10", power forward. They called him slow-mo in college. And he's not fast. He's extremely methodical and slow, but he's very effective because he uses his size to get open. He uses his ball handling ability and his slowness to his advantage. But it's not like, oh, when I'm not playing basketball, I'm extremely fast. My guess is he's pretty slow regardless. He's not extremely athletic versus someone like Russell Westbrook or someone like Ja Morant is extremely explosive on the court and off the court and their skills utilize that ability. So again, they start to explain what we see in sport and how we see it in sport. And so the last side of the coin is how do we develop those skills? Well, those skills should be developed with respect to their physiology. Arbitrary application of skill is arbitrary. Just having someone try and do something, they can try and accomplish it. But if it's not going to be a skill that's complementary to their physiology, they're always going to be lacking something and ability to actually achieve that skill. As opposed to building a skill in conjunction with their physiology, their motor potential and types of strength. And then as you want to build that skill further, raising the motor potential and physiology that's associated with that skill you want to build can work in harmony together. So I hope that begins to draw a unifying concept as to what we have between skill and performance and how those two work together to make a very harmonious relationship. Now, I don't want to dive into any of the details here. I'm not diving into sets and reps and specific program structure. I, I have a different platform for that. That's EdgeU. You could check out the, my teachings there. This is just for communication and discussion because I know you might ask, well, Max, explain in detail now how you might do this. Well, that's not for here and for, that's for another time, I guess. Um, that's very uh, theoretical at times because we don't know the perfect methods and means, but these are the questions from which research should be interpreted from. You should read research. You should look at research methods and different coaches' ways of training. I always go back to these two questions, the physiology and the skill and the structure, how they work together. Now, I'm going to take a pause and a break and wrap that and conclude that little discussion point. I want to talk about here now, building this podcast, building your social media brand or presence, whatever the heck you want to call it. Now, I am no expert at this. There are lots of people who have spent their lives doing these kind of things, building a social media presence and a brand. But I think one of the things that I can share with you that would hopefully be helpful is that when you want to, when you think about going out to build something, think about the lowest two things. The two things I think about. One is how comfortable am I doing it? Am I uncomfortable because I don't think I am skilled enough to do it? Or am I uncomfortable because I'm simply judging myself based on what I think others will judge me? That's really important because a lot of times you yourself are the self-limiting factor. You hold yourself back more times than not. It's not like someone's out there like, oh, that's actually not a good product. You shouldn't put it out. Uh, you're not good enough at it because if that's the case, I guess that's a potential reason to work on something before you put it out. But a lot of times you just hold yourself back. Talking in front of the camera in an empty room is definitely awkward and weird. But a great thing about this is if I fail... It means no one listened to my podcast. And if I failed and no one listened to my podcast, then what's there to lose? It's like the greatest 
risk to reward ratio ever. I can either make a podcast that no one listens to and I fail. And guess what? No one listened to it. So no one cares that I failed or I make a podcast that begins to get listeners and I succeeded and I succeeded in front of people. Social media has like the lowest risk in that sense. I remember when I first made my Instagram page, I actually made it anonymously because I was nervous to put myself out there and say it was me. But looking back on it, that's kind of silly because I either am getting followers and people are liking and engaging with my content or no one likes and engages my content and I fail quietly, but at least I tried and I can learn because some of those pieces of content might have bits of information on there that you yourself can then apply the next go around like, oh, this one worked well, that one didn't work well, this one worked better than others. So you kind of have some sort of what they call A-B testing to assess your product that you put out and the relative engagement that went along with it. The second question I ask myself is what is the time commitment, comma, general utility of this? I know that's kind of like a, a grander question because it's kind of a two-part one, but let me explain it. One, if something has a really, really, really high time commitment, I have to plan for it. I got to prep for it. I got to set up a lot of stuff. That's costing me money or at least energy and effort that could be used towards making me a larger brand elsewhere or more money doing something else, training someone, building a project. I don't know, whatever it might be. It's costing me time. Okay. So that's number one. Think about your time you're spending. And number two, if I'm planning a lot and it's just starting off and it's not doing well. I'm basically wasting time at the end of the day. If I could do that same effort with less effort and get the same information and results, I'll do that. I am making this podcast on my computer, on a Yeti, and a ring light that has poor lighting. Why am I doing that? Well, because I'm not going to sit here and buy a podcast studio if this podcast doesn't go anywhere. I'm going to make mistakes along the way. I'm going to have times where this podcast, well, I don't know, this podcast might not be successful ever, and that's totally okay. But what's not okay is assuming it's going to be extremely successful and then investing tons of stuff of my time and failing, then I've lost not only financial aspects I invested, but my, my time. I'm not sitting here writing out an enormous script to go through a podcast in hopes of it taking off or assuming it will take off without any insights as to what people enjoy and like. Now, to go with that as well, another thing people make and a mistake of, I, again, this is kind of like that, that two-part question, is... When they want to make something, they want to make it in a way um, that encompasses all aspects of perfection. They want the best camera, the best lighting, the best this, and the best that. Think about the rate limiting factors instead. You probably would dislike this podcast a lot if it was filmed with a really crappy microphone. So one of the huge rate limiting factors for a podcast would be a microphone, which I have a decent one. It's not the world's greatest, but it's not the worst. And so by having a microphone, I have removed some of those rate limiting factors. Now, the video quality probably isn't going to be a rate limiting factor. I guess I do have this on YouTube. And if people complain, I suppose I can adjust, but it's not going to be a rate limiting factor for my podcast. My room I shoot it in is not a rate limiting factor. There's very few rate limiting factors on certain things you put out and being aware of those rate limiting factors are important and testing the waters as to where those rate limiting factors are is important. And then what things can add synergistic power to it. 
Like maybe, okay, I've done this, but people would like to have not only better quality audio, which is fine, but if I have a guest on, they want their audio to be better or they would like more guests. So I just start as minimal as possible and slowly branch out. I think of myself as this kind of amoeba probing the environment to see what's out there as opposed to building this castle and hoping I put it in the right spot because odds are I didn't put it in the right spot because I haven't had any information to tell me where the right spot is. So I hope that makes sense. I hope you guys enjoy these. I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, go check out some of the previous episodes. As always, you can find more of my content on Instagram, Strong by Science, uh, as well as my Always an Athlete page. Check out my training programs. We have a seven-day free trial to the Always an Athlete team. Uh, check it out on Train Heroic. Feel free to subscribe and share these. If you guys enjoy these, let me know. Um, I try to keep it fun and lighthearted. We just recently talked about the old Bigfoot story, uh, the Bigfoot conspiracy. So I want to have some fun here and get you guys uh, involved. So as always, thank you. Take care. I appreciate y'all and peace out.